0: This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade for punk rock? Climb into the mosh pit and let's slam it out.
1: Once again, it's time for the Idiots, An objective defense of the 80s from a couple of idiots.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and co-host, Ray. How's your day going? <laughs> Good. I mean, weren't sure if I was going to ask you, or are you just going to volunteer? How are nope, you doing? I'm going to jump right in and ask you. That's fine. Great. And a little later, we'll be joined by our guest, Dr. Kevin Matson, to discuss whether or not the 1980s was the best decade for punk rock. But before that, let's get caught up on 80s news. So, hey, a lot has happened. You know, we did our 80s news wrap-up last week, and I thought, are we going to have any 80s news left? But of course we do, because we even had some left after that episode.
1: Yeah, there was a couple things floating around
0: still, so we're good. So in no particular order, I don't know if you've been following this story. Certainly you remember Atari. Yeah, oh, I love Atari. That's a great game system right there. And we talked about how, uh, several episodes ago, how we had an Atari system we both did when we were kids, Uh, the Atari 2600, which we also have now here in the Rumpus Room. But you may not be aware that Atari, at least someone calling themselves Atari, having the owning of that, owning that brand, had announced, I guess it was probably a couple of years ago now at this point, that they were coming out with a new Atari console.
1: They need to get on that because I think it'll be awesome. Yeah. Because, you know, Pong, you got to bring back Pong. as like the, uh, not a game, but as the, uh, when you turn it on, it just shows you Pong. Well, it's loading. Yeah. And combat and it just goes through all the old games during the load sequence. Oh yeah. So you wouldn't necessarily want to play the old games cuz nah, cuz I could play that on my phone or the old 2600, yeah, but true. it would just be that nostalgic feeling of, oh yeah, we're going to have some fun now.
0: Yeah. And and if you look at what the proposed system is, the console, it's cool. It looks like a modern take on the old, you know, wood grain uh system that we had
1: as uh, children. I think they should make it as big as a wood grain TV though. <laughs> just something it's completely and, impractical and really heavy but you just can't move it around once you set it up.
0: (laughs) It's shipped in pieces, and you have to have white glove service to assemble it. Um, In any case, Atari had announced back in, well, they were going to have a release in December of 2017. Uh, That's when the council was going to come out. And time has flown by, and they've blown past now a few different uh, deadlines that they committed to their investors, because this was a, um, what do you call those? A crowd-sourced, crowd-sourced? Crowd-funded, crowd-funded, Item They had, uh, you know, appealed for contributions, on yeah, one of those. Kind of like a Kickstarter. Yeah, Kickstarter. I think yeah. it was Kickstarter or GoFundMe, one of those things, yeah. Anyway, they make these commitments, and they've, they haven't met any of them. And, and so far, the most recent one was uh, just this past, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, where they said, um, hey, good news, everybody. They've been saying this for two years now. We've now teamed up with another company to provide the video games. So they teamed up with another company whose name, if I can find it within the next... Two seconds, I will tell you. Otherwise, okay, I don't have it. But in any case, they teamed up with another company to essentially provide the games digitally. So you would connect to a system that you could then stream the games. But the bad news is you have to pay for that service. So not in addition to buying this Atari thing, then you have to pay some subscription to get access to the games that seemed... Uh, were going
1: to be, you know, uh,
0: provided very differently when they literally proposed this uh, new console.
1: They probably realized they couldn't make cartridges because it just wasn't, like, feasible anymore. Yeah, I wonder if that was part... I don't recall if that was part of it, but yeah, it was... At least we because thought it was going to be... I don't think Atari's ever been beyond cartridges.
0: Um, yeah, you're right. I guess even when you move into the
1: 5200 and the 7800, right. you always had that... You still uh, had a cartridge. Yeah. So they probably just don't have anybody working there who knows how to stream yeah. or do any of that stuff. So right. they're desperately looking for someone
0: <laughs> well i don't even know that they have any original i don't believe they have any original atari folks i think somebody got a hold of the brand i probably should have researched this a whole lot more <laughs> and actually i knew this story very well two years ago because i had considered giving them money and i'm glad oh. i didn't
1: well you should have. if if you all had given them money then yeah. this system would be up and running yeah and Maybe. it would be probably the top of the top line it'd be top shelf
0: well they haven't uh you know to those that did give money they've Completely disappointed, and I'm looking at this article from the Register dot uh, dot co dot uk, um, but online here, and this is they tell this story about what's happened recently. And in summary, they say Atari's missed every single deadline It's set. Uh, it hasn't provided any updates for months. There's still no evidence there's even a working prototype. The only man on the team, this is what I wanted to tell you, with actual experience building game consoles, and the uh, is now the co-founder of another startup oh, no. company. So, and they're not uh, Atari. Some folks posted asking, wait, what happened to the other guy? And then they started taking these comments down, these questions. So Atari was booted off its own
1: subreddit for deleting posts and comments it didn't like. Well, what they need to do is do another Kickstarter to get this thing kickstarted again. (laughs) Can you imagine how bold they would have to be to do
0: that? Okay. In other 80s news... Uh, this is something that will bring a delight to your ear in a couple different ways. Huey Lewis and the News have returned with their first song in over 10 years. I am excited because I have not heard it yet. Well, so. I'm going to play you a little bit of it right now. It's called Her Love is Killing Me. So far, so good. Yeah. So far, it's. I mean, it's what you'd expect from Huey Lewis in the 1980s.
1: Yep. 80.
0: He sounds just as good as ever. Right? I mean, that could have been something off of sports.
1: Yeah, which I just listened to
0: it. at work the other day. Yeah. Now, as, if, you, if you remember, uh, just about a year ago, Huey Lewis announced that they, they had canceled their tour because he had, uh, was experiencing sudden hearing loss. And he was later diagnosed as having Meniere's disease, which is this terrible disease. The, the hearing issues are only one element of it, so we certainly wish him the best. But while the, this prevented him from performing live... Surprise! Surprise! They still were able to go into the studio and record this this new album.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I'm assuming he just would have to have his headphones jacked way up so he could hear better. But his voice is going to be as good as ever, no matter what you do. I would assume until it crackles and, yep. and shits the bed on him. Yeah, but that sounds amazing. That could, like you said, that could have been on any one of the albums in the '80s.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the good news is, uh, you know, there's a whole album of songs just like that coming in in 2020. So. You know, it reminds me, have you had suggested they should have gotten Huey Lewis for the Back to the Future musical? They
1: still should. You know,
0: and maybe at the time he was still
1: figuring well, out what was going wrong. So, like you informed me, they could just throw it away and have him do it again. Sure, they might halfway have Halfway through the show. Well, yeah. Which is something I learned about the theater. <laughs> I don't know if I said halfway
0: through the show. But yeah, so usually <laughs> when they get a show, finally they start to. Uh, actually, you know, uh, really workshopping it as they get closer to production, they may find songs that don't work. But you're right, during previews, there's been situations where they find a song doesn't work, the audience doesn't connect with it, so they scrap it or change some
1: lines. Like, what? it's it's similar to what they do with that movie, Best Defense? Best Defense, (laughs) yes, yes. It's the same thing. Oh my goodness, yes, right. Yeah.
0: Yes. listen to our Eddie Murphy episode to know what we're talking about.
1: Well, they already did, I'm assuming, if they're on this one.
0: Yeah. And if this is the first one you're hearing, well, awesome. Welcome. Uh, Speaking of Eddie Murphy, though, we've got uh, two bits of Eddie Murphy news that are super exciting right in the wake of our, you know, exciting uh, Eddie Murphy podcast just a couple of weeks ago. One of them is that Eddie Murphy—and, you know, we talked about this briefly. um, Again, we were talking about his his stand-up material was that— in, in, in 1996, I believe it was, he had issued a letter apologizing for some of the material in some of his earlier stand-up. And then, again, now being interviewed with Vanity Fair about his upcoming uh, film about Dolomite, which is uh, it's a Netflix film called Dolomite Is My Name. He, uh, once again, expressed regret uh, of some of the material he had in Raw. He's saying, quote, I was a young guy processing a broken heart, you know, kind of an asshole. So they showed him some clips of his material, and he was even put off by it, uh, saying that he was a different person then.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure he's going to come up with some really good stuff, so I'm not really worried about it. So some more, again, some more exciting Eddie Murphy news. So not only is uh, he
0: coming a- a- out with this new film, Dolom- Dolomite Film, which if you haven't seen the trailer, it looks pretty good. I'm only roughly f- as familiar with the story of Dolomite, who was, uh, you know, uh, a stand-up comedian and also someone some that some consider the, uh, I don't want, I want to say godfather of rap, but an early rapper in a sense because he delivered his, some of his material in a in uh, kind of a, what we would think of as rap today. huh?
1: I assumed that Dolomite was a pimp. Uh-huh. I well, really did. I thought this was a movie about him as a pimp again, like Velvet Jones. Right, right. Well,
0: um, Dolomite is actually a character um, that, um, so there was actually uh, a stand-up comedian who, uh, and again, if you look at the trailer, you get a sense for this story pretty quickly, but um, there was a comedian, Rudy Ray Moore, who created this character of Dolomite. Yes, and Dolomite might have been a pimp. He's certainly uh, seeing, you know, some of the clips of the old Dolomite films. Yeah, he, he sort of dressed like what you'd consider a pimp back in the 70s. And, um, but that was his alter ego in his, some of his acts and uh, in these films.
1: I'm sure it'll be awesome. I mean, you know, if it's as good as most of his other movies that were made in the 80s, it'll be fantastic. He's just got to catch, catch that lightning in a bottle
0: again. So in addition to that, I was just about to say, we learned also while he's making the uh, interview circuit, this time with uh, an interview with Collider.com, he uh, announced that he would be hosting this year's Christmas episode of Saturday Night Live.
1: Oh, that'll be awesome. it will be the first time I've watched that in 30 years. <laughs> it may be the first time it was great, you know, <laughs> since
0: then. I wonder if he'll bust out any of those characters that we were talking about.
1: Oh, that would be really cool.
0: Yeah, no, we, we, know, uh, we know, we know I think we on Facebook we were chatting with some of our listeners about how Buckwheat is dead. Mm-hmm. But Buckwheat actually came back, and it turned out Buckwheat had faked his own death. So Buckwheat could be
1: back. Yeah, he could bring all of them back. I mean, it's Eddie Murphy. You never know what he's going to do.
0: And um, the other bit of exciting news is not only is he returning to Saturday Night Live, but during this interview he also said once... Coming to America 2, which is coming, is done. He is going to start working on Beverly Hills Cop 4. Ooh.
1: Well, that will be interesting.
0: Yeah. So, um, the uh, you know, they've tried this many times before. And uh, there was a, I don't think it ever made it to air, but there was a Beverly Hills Cop uh, sh- pilot shot for television, I think for Fox. And I think... Eddie was to play the chief of police on this show mm. and maybe not even be on every episode. I think he was on, the, certainly on the pilot. And um, uh, the actor's name is going to escape me, who was playing, I think, his son, Axel Foley Jr. or something, was to be the,
1: you know, the new star of that uh,
0: franchise. But it, it never went anywhere. I
1: was going to say, that sounds horrible, <laughs> and I'm glad that never went anywhere. Some ideas, you know, is there, I have no problem with them throwing the ideas out there but some of them just sound really silly, and that's one of them. Yeah. So that was it. Anyway, another comment about that? No. Just
0: deal with arthritis? No. Oh. And that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> there. Now, I'm going to just be silent for a moment. If you could just go, blah,
1: for me. <laughs> After that beautiful performance? Uh-oh, you just want to leave it at that? Yeah. Okay. All right.
0: So as you know, a little bit later, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kevin Matson, Professor of Contemporary History at Ohio University about punk rock in the 1980s. In the meantime, right now, we're going to talk about punk rock and our recollections, experiences, understandings about it. And I'm going to look to you later and now to help lead this discussion because you are our resident, you know, yes. non-hip-hop, every other genre of hip uh, other than hip-hop music <laughs> expert. So I will start yeah. with this. Very non-controversial question Which I may Mm -hmm, put to mm -hmm. the professor later too So I don't know anything about punk rock Isn't it true that
1: punk rock began With the Sex Pistols in the 1980s? No, that is not true That's what someone told me But what you really need to know is Punk rock started with the Ramones 76, that's the release of their first album That's the first punk album They're the first punk band Even though they call themselves Rock and Roll Band And you have the Sex Pistols Okay, we can throw away everything else from the 70s Pretty much well, okay. I mean, there's bands that started in the '70s, yeah. but we don't recognize them really until they get into the
0: '80s. So, understanding what I've read, because you like, suggested some things, I, I, some documentaries I, I watch and things to read, and I did do that. I don't have the retention for it that you do, but some of the uh, some of the things I found interesting were okay. What is punk rock?
1: Punk rock is just loud, right? And you can sing about what you want, mm-hmm. and you can just be who you want to be. So you can have punk rock is bands like the Ramones, the Misfits, but then you've got the Dead Milkmen, the Violent Femmes. It's, pr- it's, it's a wide range of bands that can be a part of it. So one of the elements I recall, again, learning from you, was that
0: um, this idea that it's DIY, that folks like the Ramones epitomize where in a reaction to the overproduced rock bands of the 70s, like uh, Journey, Kansas, those types of bands, you had folks taking it a lot more simple.
1: Yeah, that was a big part of the 70s movement was bring it back to the basic structure. But then in the 80s is when your DIY really explodes because nobody would sign a punk band in the 80s. So they just said, well, we're going to make our own labels, we're going to make our own tours, we're going to sleep on everybody's couches across the country, we're going (laughs) to have a network. And it made it about halfway through the eighties, but I'm assuming that's a lot of the stuff the professor wants to talk about later. So, well, I, I want to be careful what we talk about because I don't want to double up. on Yeah,
0: and his so. his his book, and I think we'll be free to talk about his book. It's it's um the subtitle implies that it is going to talk about the connection of politics and culture and and punk rock in the nineteen eighties. So what I thought was interesting this idea of DIY and even uh, how punk rock seemed to be an evolutional reaction to rock and roll music. That and some of the information that I, we, I looked at was that you can look at songs in the fifties, even um, like Link Ray's "Rambler," "Rambler," um, something like that. Yeah, or or, or um I bam, forget this guy. Bam, bam, yeah, or, or "Rebel yeah. Rouser" by uh, mm-hmm. shoot Eddie Eddie um, no uh, Dwayne Eddie by Dwayne, Dwayne Eddie. Yeah. Um, this idea that you could, well, th- those are a little bit different in the sense that, um, in any case, you've got just a few instruments, which, you know, Buddy Holly just had a few instruments, but you pick up the tempo, poke a few holes maybe in your amp, yep. get a more a rougher sound, more distorted, over-modulated sound, and you've got what essentially is punk rock even back then, even though we didn't know it as, as punk right. rock yet.
1: They were, yeah, they were just rebels running around doing their thing. So
0: when do we start thinking of it as punk
1: rock? Um, late 70s. Okay. That's when it really takes shape. And then it, they transform it in a new wave to make it more acceptable. But, and that's when the punk goes underground and changes into its own thing. Because in the early days, you had, like, Blondie was a part of the punk scene. Right. And that's ridiculous. And why do you say that? I
0: mean, does it meet the elements we're talking about? Uh, you know, fast tempo, sing about whatever you want. Obviously, that's easy
1: to meet. Um, DIY. Um, Hot blonde chick in a pop band, but plays at CBGB's and knows all the punks. I would compare this similar to, my band used to play with a lot of death metal shows. Yeah. We would do mop-up duty at the end. We weren't a death metal band. Mm -hmm. We were a silly punk band, but we played with them a lot because everybody needed somebody to close a show at two o'clock in the morning. So you think that's what Blondie was? I think that's what Blondie was doing, but because she was a girl, they let her have the good time slots and... I mean, have you seen what these guys looked like in the late 70s? These are not your rock star looking guys. Yeah, yeah. No, it's what any most folks would think of uh, punk rocker
0: looking like. like. Think of the Ramones, I suppose.
1: Right, yeah. They are the poster boys.
0: Yeah, I mean, Sex Pistols, you know, start because of Malcolm McLaren, start adding that uh, sort of BDSM kind of, you know, you get yeah. your spikes and your spike Yeah, hair that's, and, the,
1: that's the divide between the, the, the genres, really. You have the Ramones style punk, which is black leather jackets and more streetwise attire. And you have the, what I call the fashion punks, which is the Sex Pistols crew with the mohawks and the safety pins and the bondage pants and all that stuff.
0: You know, speaking of that and the fashion, um, you know, uh, again, some of the things that are coming back to me now the New York uh, dolls. Yes. So this is a group of of men who dress like women yep. uh, led by uh, David Johansson, mm-hmm. who I didn't know he was a New York doll. I mean, that's. You know him as Buster. Yeah. So um, Buster Poindexter, a mm-hmm. uh, Buster. It is interesting that he would go from dolls to. Buster Poindexter in a sense, not in the sense that he would be a character, I guess, but that someone that did punk rock did these sort of, uh, what was
1: that, Hot 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 was kind of yeah, like a... Yeah, it's
0: a great song. Yeah, it's, it's a good song, but... Um,
1: well, once again, I'm sure he likes to eat and have a place to live, so he <laughs> yeah. had to come up with something new. But it, what
0: occurred to me in seeing and learning about the Dolls was that um, they seemed like a uh, predecessor, maybe not, to,
1: to glam metal of the 80s. Well, yeah, they also influenced punk quite a bit because those bands saw them play and saw them like... They're doing whatever they want. We should do that too. Yep. And they have what they, and this is like Johnny Ramon would always say, uniform. Yep. We wear uniforms on stage. I don't ever want to see you without your black leather jacket.
0: So that's interesting to me because that suggests that maybe the Ramones were at some point not wearing jeans and black leather jackets. I can't picture that at all. Well,
1: they, uh, Yeah, they, they started out that, they actually, they went and they looked in their, all their closets and they said, what do we all have that looks the same? Well, we all have black leather jackets. Check. Check. We all got ripped blue jeans, check, and we all got white tennis shoes. All right, everybody, you're going to wear those. That's our uniform. That's every day from now on.
0: Hmm. I don't imagine that they were coming off stage and then changing into three-piece suits, though.
1: No, I'm assuming that they just... Pardon me. Yes.
0: As they break through, break through, way through the marsh pit.
1: No, but you'd be interested. Um, Dee Dee eventually tried to be a rapper. Oh. He was Dee Dee King for a while. He has an <laughs> album and everything. Oh, no. I and, definitely uh, got to hear this. And Johnny Ramone used to fine him for showing up without his leather jacket and stuff, because oh. he'd have the ghetto, you know, shoes and all that. He oh, had yeah. a Kangol hat on and oh, gazelle yeah. glasses. Yeah, he was really into it. And he would get in trouble with Johnny, because Johnny ran the band, and he'd fine him for wearing stuff like that when he'd show up to the concert, and he'd have to change into his Ramones right. gear.
0: Get your uniform on. <laughs> That's funny. I've got to hear it. imagine
1: it's awful. Have oh, it's horrible. Yeah. I mean, the Ramones are great. D.D. R- King. mm and the funny thing is, is Dee Dee writes all, almost all the Ramones songs. Oh, so maybe he wrote some good rap songs. He just eh, he just no. did not perform them well. Mm. But his love of it is what makes it cool.
0: And the Ramones are certainly one of the bands that you know. I didn't know a whole lot about punk. You know, my 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 question at the beginning here, uh, which again I might repeat that for the professor just for fun, because I, I would imagine, imagine he'll disagree. The question about the Sex Pistols is is hides a truth in the sense that I didn't know much about punk rock, so. I knew Ramones and I knew Sex Pistols. And quite honestly, I didn't know, who, you know, who started, who begat what or, you know, who started first. Um, I've come to know now that the Ramones dropped that album. And then within a week we had, I think it was within a week or so, the Sex Pistols were performing in the UK. so
1: Yeah, from, from what I've read and seen, the Ramones actually toured England. And just about every person who's in a punk band in England saw them play and started a band like that evening. Like right. everyone in the crowd just said, all right, you're a drummer, <laughs> you're a bass player, we're a band now. We're going to count off numbers: one, two, three, four, and you keep going over. Yeah. All the ones get together, yep. and if they can do it, we what can I, all do it.
0: So you know, that was my first awareness: was Ramones and Sex Pistols, and, and you know I did like their music, um, but I didn't. Well, I guess as I got older, you start hearing about Dead Kennedys and um, Black Flag. Black Flag, all those
1: great bands, yeah, mm-hmm. and those folks.
0: And um, you were mentioned CBGBs, but I guess we should pause a moment and say that that's so. That's a, a club that was in the downtown area of New York City where. A lot of these bands performed, and they performed there before they had record deals, before anybody knew who they were. You had Blondie, like you said, Ramones, uh, Talking Heads were there. Would you consider Talking Heads punk rock?
1: No, but they were a part of the scene, just like everyone no. else. So so it was television. Uh, a lot of I don't consider a lot of those bands punk rock, except for the attitude, and they were a part of the scene. Right. Like I said, you can have all kinds of different bands come together and play at the same club, but... Eventually, you have to figure out what they are. Like Talking Heads, yeah. They Psycho Killer, yeah. That's kind of a punk song. But once again, when you see how talented those guys are and their music evolves, they're not really a punk band. Punk bands don't really evolve. Hmm. They kind of stay where they are. You remind me that on that one uh, one of the documentaries, they
0: talked about the Clash and what was and asking the <laughs> You roll your eyes at me. Whether the Clash was a punk rock band, so you go from let's see, what's an early Clash song? Um,
1: London Calling. Okay,
0: London Calling. That's what would be more considered, I guess, their sort of a punk yeah, era,
1: right riot, yeah.
0: And then I think I think you're reminding me one of the criticisms criticisms of them. No, actually, maybe it was a compliment by um, Henry Rollins. Actually, that Clash was amazing because they did evolve.
1: Yeah, I'm not saying the Clash isn't amazing, and that they that they're evolving was a bad thing. But I just don't think they were ever a punk band. Yeah, I think they were already on their way to a different place because they were so talented. They didn't really fit with the punk rock kind of thing. It's interesting. So you, so you, come, you came back to this twice
0: now. The suggestion that if you're talented, if you evolve creativity creat- creatively, that maybe you're not punk. So punk suggests that you're what sort of the same sort of style.
1: And I think with punk, you kind of you already know you're limited, hmm. and you're. Doing it because you love it, not because you think you can get to another level. For me, that's what it is. I can't play heavy metal. I can't play hair metal. But I can do this because I've already reached as good as a guitar player as I'm going to be. And I could do this for 20 years. I don't care. I do it because it's fun. And I have a message. And I get to hang out with my friends and drink beer. And I think that's more what punk rock is about. The message and those people who don't have super talent. Like if you were to if I go see a band and they're a punk band and their guitar player are just shredding the crap out of a guitar, he ain't staying in that band. Yeah, he's gone.
0: Yeah, I guess you don't really hear uh, solos generally in uh, your classic punk songs. Not usually. Mm. Well, then that makes me think of something else though, because we have folks that have you know. So in the 1980s, we had uh, we, we've mentioned already some of the most uh, well known certainly in the punk scene, and some of those are well known on the radio scene, like we talked about. Eventually, you know, Talking Heads breaking out, Ramones certainly, mm-hmm. and. Sex Pistols, I think, maybe reached the sort of level of fame they are because what folks might not know is that they were a short-lived band, at least certainly in the original configuration. They, um, it, it, sort of the you know typical or, or what we think of as um, a stereotypical of rock and roll. I mean, they they lived hard and you know what what burned out fast. I know there's some kind of.
1: Well, I mean, all the individual members except for the dead one, they, they went on to have other bands and stuff. Right, so. but the
0: Sex Pistols themselves, but the Sex
1: Pistols themselves, they were a. They were that live fast, die young yeah. kind of attitude. And,
0: and they came to America and had a concert that led to the demise of the band. And, <laughs> and that was it. And then Sid Vicious was dead a short time later, yeah. like weeks later, I think. But I think p- part of the allure and sort of mystique around them is sort of that short-lived,
1: you know. Oh, that's the same career. Same thing with Nirvana. Right. It's that the 27 Club.
0: Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So who are current or, or have been cont- uh, uh punk bands since those of the 80s. Would Nirvana be considered a punk band?
1: I consider them a punk band. Yeah. Just because somebody else labeled them grunge right. to sell records doesn't change the fact that they're a punk band. Yeah.
0: It seemed like Dave Grohl in one of the documentaries takes issue with grunge
1: suggesting, like, who 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 came up with that? We were... Yeah, I have no punk. idea, but it makes no sense. They're a punk band. They yeah. always were. What about Rage Against the Machine? Nah. Yeah. I would... You know, they're that weird kind of crossover sound... Almost into metal, almost because it's just so heavy. Yeah. Again, I'm and tra- once again, they got a lot of talent in that band. Yeah. So. I was, well, I was just thinking their guitarists can shred, so maybe not. Um, what about Green Day? In my opinion, Green Day pretty much invented emo punk in their early time, and then everybody made fun of them, and they became a punk band
0: as a result. As of a that? result
1: of being made fun of, yeah.
0: Because I know, again, again, I'm keep pointing these different documentaries, and we we'll, we'll provide links to these different documentaries and books that we've. Uh, read and re- referenced during this conversation, but um, and one of them, um, Billy Joe takes issue with um, the fact that they were called commercial punk or sellout punk, you know, thinking that we were just punk.
1: Well, if the shoe fits, man. Yeah, if you've got a Broadway if, musical if, made about you. If you change your entire musical style because someone tells you you're not punk enough, oh, you probably... I mean, some of their stuff's good, but most of it the, they're just ripping off other stuff to be punk. I, you know, I, I didn't notice. I, I guess I'll have to listen more closely to one album if to another If you go back see. to their early stuff, like the 1,000, you know, slappy, happy hour stuff, the really early stuff, it's completely different than everything you hear from them afterwards. I didn't know Because that. people just said, you're not punk. And they said, we'll prove we're punk. Right. And then they changed their whole style. And then they smashed some things. Yeah. Yeah. And smashing things and. But, I mean, I like them, they're good, but you know, that's a tough one, I'd I call them pop punk Yeah. So which, then, is a, which in my opinion is a completely different genre. Well, yeah,
0: I guess by the different elements that you sort of hit upon that would make something punk, even suggesting that it's pop punk already puts it out of true punk you know, yeah. what would yeah. be real punk Okay, so anything else to add before we uh, speak with the professor? Nope. Okay, very good So in just a moment, we'll be right back with Dr. Kevin Matson. guest today is the Connor Study Professor of Contemporary History at Ohio University. While his writing has appeared in many publications, including The Nation and The Guardian, he himself has appeared in various media, including NPR, Fox News, and The Colbert Report. And as if that's not enough, he's authored a number of books, including the soon-to-be-published We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and The Real Culture War of 1980s America. Please welcome to the show... Dr. Kevin Matson. Hey, Kevin, how you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Glad to be here.
0: So we're talking today about uh, punk rock. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But I wanted to i pointed out that you're a professor of contemporary history. And so the first, my, my threshold question is, what is that? Because it sounds like a, a contradiction to have something contemporary and also historical.
2: Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in, in, the, in the ways that my university defines contemporary history, um, and our department does as well, it's, it's history that, for the most part, comes after World War II, um, although some people stretch it back a little bit further but I think the real thing that I, that contemporary history tries to do is tries to explain the present in some ways by drawing upon recent and contemporary history um, and I think you know it, 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 it's a challenge very often to know when you can truly get historical perspective of things especially today when things move so fast and there's this 24/7 media cycle that's hard to cut through um, but in, in general I think I would define it for myself as basically doing contemporary history in terms of the time frame that you're dealing with but also trying to um, kind of inform current public debates about w- and and show what history can actually help inform those debates. If that makes sense,
0: it does make sense. And um, you know, it reminds me a little of our show. I know that's a stretch because our show is not nearly as academic as what you just described. But this idea that uh, you know our past informs us. Obviously, reaching back to the eighties is, is a lot more recent than reaching back to. Um, World War Two,
2: yeah, but I mean the '80s was a crucial decade.
0: Yeah. yeah, and having lived in it as a you know as a kid is you know I started that decade as a ten year old, I guess, and you know as an adult by the end of it, I certainly didn't appreciate its cultural and political importance at the time. But looking back, and even connection with our podcast here, uh, I realize you know not only. Uh, I'm not only reminded that I love the pop culture that that's the premise of the show, but how uh, what shaped it and what was happening happened what happened then politically that you know led to much of the media that I love from that decade.
2: There, uh, yeah, no, that's 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 definitely that's definitely the case. And I, and I, I you know, in, in general, as a person who's in academia, I'm always interested in working with people who are trying to take some of the findings and discoveries that go on in academia and, and you know share them with a the wider public which is what I think you guys are doing.
0: We're trying. Yes. So you have a so you wrote a book and it's coming out uh, sometime early next mm-hmm. year and it's called We're Not Here to Entertain: uh, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. Is your interest in punk rock a personal one, or is it a more academic one?
2: It's both. Um, uh, it's, I, was, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area during the 80s. We're probably about the same age. Um, and uh, I was able to kind of dive into the D.C. punk scene, which um, wasn't as well known during the time that it was in formation and, and so forth. Um, it, but now I think a lot of people recognize it as being an important city for its music scene, um, especially its punk music scene. Um, so I had that personal experience. I also wound up getting kind of politicized myself through a lot of um, punk literature, reading magazines like Maximum Rock and Roll, um, uh, you know, other publications that were smaller zines. Um, and so I kind, of, I, I kind of consider punk to be a kind of primal experience that I have in my past. But on the other hand, and I, I, I have no intention of writing, you know, like a memoir or uh, anything along those lines. The, the book opens up with me remembering some of, some of the experiences I had in DC but it quickly transitions into you know into a kind of a historical account which is that it and that's the challenge of course is to try to step back from something that you were involved in and try to see the wider context in which it operated um, and see how extensive it was and in fact for me even though my experience in the DC mu- music scene and and, and political scene um, was were important experiences for me I, I didn't really realize how well widespread this thing punk was um, in the 1980s, which I think made it exceptional from you know previous renditions of punk rock. That this was a, a widespread suburban, um, largely white male um, movement, which I think was one of its weaknesses. Right. Um. And but it you, you know it really was. I think. I mean, I was shocked to find you know public zines, three zines that came out of Oklahoma um, during the 1980s. That was the sort of thing that I didn't really realize how much this had really insinuated itself into places where you probably wouldn't expect it because usually we try to locate punk either on the east coast or the west coast. Um and one of the things that I try to do in the book is show how active it was actually in the Midwest.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, you remind me that uh, even here, you know, where we we record our show here in Cleveland, Ohio, that I had learned and I learned from my, my co-host ray before i had read this even that we had the i think
1: it's the dead boys came out of cleveland and yes the dead boys yeah. out of akron their big hit was sonic reducer
2: yeah there was a scene in, in cleveland at that time you're absolutely right perubu yep. was another band that was that was great and there were some you know other bands that most people don't even you know know of today but yeah you're absolutely right cleveland was important in the history of punk
0: and and so growing up in, in washington uh do, do you believe that uh Bands in uh, Washington were more political because because they were located in the capital of the U.S.
2: I, I don't think they were more political. I think that there's something of a myth that the D.C. scene was always a politically engaged scene. That's just not really accurate. If you take bands like Minor Threat, um, uh, other bands like Henry Rollins gets his start there with a band called S.O.A. And if you look at those bands, they're really um, not, not interested in politics per se. They talk about kind of personal politics, like your own individual behavior and and changing that in order to make change in society. But but engagement. And politics was never really that central in the D.C. public scene, punk scene, until probably like the mid-80s is when it started to, I think, become more politicized, um, and I won't go into the details of that, but but for me, I, I, I learned uh, politics, so to speak, in, in, in the punk scene... But I wouldn't say that it, it wouldn't be fair to characterize it as always political, and some of that has to do with the location of D.C. When you grow up in D.C., it's very easy for you to get sick of politics, and and you know you see a new administration come in, and and it's like okay, here comes new guys, <laughs> but they're not going to be here for long, and you right. know I think so. There's a I think a, some something of a rejection of politics, almost an anti-politics in some elements of the D.C. punk scene, but that switches I think as as I think people grow more aware of of some of the the, the fears that young people feel about. The presidency of Reagan.
1: I actually, I have a question, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever get to see Minor Threat live in DC?
2: Yeah, I did. I I, I can't remember how many times I did um, see Minor Threat live in. See,
1: that would be amazing in the eighties.
2: I, you know, it's it, there's there's a few bands that I, I kind of regret not having seen because one of the things that DC had was a scene large enough, um, and this was you know much again more widespread than I knew at the time. But it was it, it was a city large enough to attract acts from outside of the scene. Um, and a, a famous institution known as the 930 Club was the primary venue where you'd have a lot of bands come in from California, um, bands from the Midwest, um, and where you could really see just how, you know, that this thing was was more pervasive than I think you, you might otherwise think.
0: So you mentioned Ronald Reagan, and the the subtitle of your book mentions Ronald Reagan. The cover of your book includes Ronald Reagan. Uh, a few episodes ago on our show, we we had discussed how the political culture of the 1980s paralleled that of the popular culture, uh, and really beginning, I suppose, in the, in the 1970s or mm-hmm. late 1970s, in the very at the very latest, um, where you had Ronald Reagan running on a platform of "Make America Great Again," which was you know taking America back to what was perceived as the you know idyllic. Uh, era of the 1950s, you know, we see that ag- again today, and that's reflected in our pop culture. So you've got uh, films like Greece, which are set in the 1950s, and Happy Days. You've got a movie, Back to the Future, which uh, in which the the main character literally goes back to the 1950s, and you've got another starring vehicle uh, of Michael J. Fox's, a television show, mm-hmm. uh, Family Ties, where he plays a you know very out there uh, Republican character who you know uh, pokes fun at his uh, hippie parents. Um, so when you talk about punk rock. Was punk rock instead of rejection of that political culture and that pop culture at the time?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question of politics. I would say and popular culture. I mean, the, the, both the Back to the Future and um, Family Ties were uh, two of Reagan's favorite um, movie television show, um, and he, you know, he he praised it. Um, he praised the, the show and he praised, um, you know, the character of Alex Keaton. So, um, you know, this is. I mean, it's it's not like I, I think. Reagan tries to politicize popular culture. He's always on the lookout for a movie or uh, a celebrity that he can kind of, you know, identify with and tag on to. So, you know, he welcomes Michael Jackson to the White House in 1984 and gushes about how it's such a thriller to have him there. Um, and he actually, you know, his legal consultant um, whose name is John Roberts, probably sounds familiar to people who, who follow the yes. Supreme Court, basically tell him, you know, you can't you can't do this. You can't shill for, <laughs> you know, private entertainment that's just not appropriate for the president to do. Um and he pulls back sometimes but you know he tries to use Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA during his during his re-election drive. He's constantly citing movies whenever he's giving, you know, kind of press conferences and he he seems well. to be a president who has a hard time keeping um, uh, track of what's reality versus what's a movie or a television show or or a song, a form of entertainment. And I think that's in some ways what most aggravated. Um, this is my interpretation. This that, that, that most aggravated a lot of young kids was that this seemed to be a presidency that was based around the principle of entertainment rather than around you know serious confrontation with difficulties. It also was a presidency that was that we we now know looking back was also very much into secrecy and did not like transparency. And that obviously comes around with the Iran-Contra um, investigations. Um, but that, that's after the time frame that I, I deal with in the book.
0: The way you characterize it reminds me of, of my kids, you know, when I start to catch on with something that's uh, popular to them, that's when it's out of fashion. Yeah, that's right. What, what you just said made me think that punk rock was is sort of like that. If, if If our president of the United States is into these <laughs> pop culture items, then, you know, yeah, they're done for our generation. Yeah. Um, Keep
2: in mind that, I mean, some evidence bears that out, which is that um, the music industry from 79 to about 83 is in a complete slump. Um, record sales are just plummeting. People aren't buying the stuff that they're supposed to buy, um, and I, I mean, I, I think that that's also a kind of indicative of a of a kind of general distrust in corporate entertainment, um, and it, it becomes radicalized within the punk scene. But I think that there were plenty of kids, probably who weren't, you know, um, punks, who 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 kind of thought that a lot of the stuff that was offered as cultural fair to them by, by large corporations wasn't really all that great. Um, um, but, and that's the first insta that's, I think the first inspiration of a lot of, of, you know, punk activity in the eighties was just a complete rejection of a lot of the popular culture that was being marketed at young people and not seemingly to succeed terribly well.
0: And when you, and uh, you know, I I know, you know, we're going to, we're going to buy your book and we're going to read your book. We're not here to entertain, but is when you, in your subtitle here, the real culture war, is that what you're referring to?
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's that I think there was, there was a, and, and Reagan himself like takes, that something that he calls the underground economy, um, which is basically people who work for cash, and his his dislike of that is that it it doesn't lead to any governmental revenue. I mean, it doesn't get taxed, um, and it's right. kind of funny. He blames that for like some of the economic problems that were faced during the eighties, when in fact, obviously, he's he's quicker than and, than anyone to to cut. Taxes on the most wealthy ranks of American <laughs> yes. society to blame a bunch of you know people going out mowing their lawn, mowing the neighbor's lawn for five bucks is, is somehow you know a crime against uh, you know uh, against humanity it seems kind of absurd. But that but that kind of underground economy is actually um, fueling the punk scene. This is all almost all initiatives during the eighties are surrounded by the principle of do it yourself, which means produce you know, make your own music, produce your own music, distribute your own music, operate outside of corporate channels. Um, um And then, you know, even set up a kind of tour network um, that you see developing throughout the 80s where people say, you know, you can stay at my house when you play when you play here locally or, you know, you can stay with this other person or whatever. Now,
1: actually, um, with you growing up in D.C., you have minor threat. You've got the bad braids. Right. Um, right. Ian McKay. I mean, these guys, they almost single handedly, along with Black Flag, started the DIY scene of the 80s, mm-hmm. which is why I consider 80s punk the best decade for it because these guys could tour the entire country off a network of phone calls and sleeping on couches.
2: Yeah. Um, you're starting to see people create what is truly an independent culture, which I think is a term that sometimes is, is used incorrectly. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not indie music, which is today, basically corporate records, re- record companies promoting <laughs> bands that are a little bit off kilter back then right. in the eighties. And I don't want to get too nostalgic about it, but back there in the, back in the eighties, it was about actually, you know, kind of succeeding from popular culture and creating your own and, and trying to, to nurture it. And I think that's the, that, Yeah, that's exactly what I mean by the actual culture war uh, of 1980s America.
0: Wow. I hadn't even thought about it. how the economics of of punk rock and scenes like that, uh, the importance of the economics of those scenes at the time.
2: It's it's crucial to to a lot of different scenes and to a growing awareness, I think, uh, uh, that young people have decided, or at least some, are deciding to make their own culture and and rejecting what the corporations are are offering to them.
0: Uh, Of course, this idea that uh, if a, a punk rock band is paid under the Table, so to speak, that that money somehow disappears from the economy is you know silly because uh, of course you've got musicians then that have money in their pocket that they can spend on you know more black leather jackets or, or torn <laughs> right. up t-shirts or something right
2: exactly and it, I mean it's a real distraction. I mean you know one of the things about Reagan is that he was I mean his his um, his career you know was based upon um, success within uh, within corporate culture both you know on television during the 1950s and as a you know B movie actor during the 1940s so I mean. I think he is very much hinged to want, I mean, he, 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 the reason that I think he gets so excited about Michael Jackson, um, and welcomes him to the, to the white house lawn is, is not because Michael Jackson is going to help in an anti drinking and driving advertisement, which he was, It, it, it was that he Reagan saw Michael Jackson saving the music industry. And a lot of people did. Um, and I think that's what in many ways, Reagan is, is largely all about is he wants to, um, see success for corporate you know, popular culture. Um that for him is 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 crucial. Um and and the notion that there are people who are kind of, you know, down the rungs doing their own thing and creating a something of an underground economy is is is, is anathema to him. I forget who it was there were two advisors to, to him who said, "We tried to get Reagan to to actually say something bad about corporate culture <laughs> and about corporations and we just never could." You know, we just he, he never would go that route. And I think that's because he sincerely believed that that, you know, that the corporate economy was was um was the was crucial.
0: Wow. And, and I don't think Ronald Reagan could even have predicted how successful the album Thriller would be. I think today it's still the best-selling album of all time.
2: Yeah, I think so, although I'm it might be that Nirvana beat them out. Okay. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd, I haven't checked the the most recent stats on that.
0: So taking a step back, what are the elements of punk rock music? Certainly we talked about um well, I guess a, well, we should uh, speaking of the elements is, is it Does it have to be political in nature? Uh, Could it be as you know silly and frivolous as the Ramones saying, you know, hey, let's go?
2: Yeah, I I think, and uh, and that's definitely the case in the eighties. I mean, there's a wide array of bands. Some of them very much you know engaged in politics of some sort, and some of them rejecting politics of the the kind of anti-politics as we we talked earlier about. You know, bands like Minor Threat. Um, So there's a wide range, and there's and there's bands who you know are obviously you know um, just having a good time or, or having fun um, and urge humorous in in many cases there's no doubt that there, there I think there's a wide, that's one of the things that I also wanted to document was that there was a great deal of diversity too it wasn't like you know it, there, it was like this one singular um, movement that had no aberrations from it there were people doing different things um, uh, and and sometimes just you know silly things um, so so yeah no it, it, it's a very diverse um, thing I mean if you even some of the sounds of the music if you if you listen back to them um, you know you, you have a band like the Dead Kennedys, which is kind of a, an amalgamation of psychedelic music, surf music, and punk. Um, you have a band like right. the Minutemen, which sound almost like they were playing a version of free jazz. Um, you know, you have a band like Husker <laughs> yeah. Du, who's playing music that sounds, that at first off is really fast and then slows itself down and, and incorporates a kind of popish element to it. So, I mean, there's a great array of different forms of musical expression that I still think fit under the umbrella of punk.
0: I uh, So, Ray was. Ray was <laughs> shaking his head here when you said the Minutemen should be considered maybe the you know
1: Um I'm not a big Minutemen fan mm-hmm. but I do recognize that they were a big part of it. Yeah. I, I lean more towards with the eighties with the Kennedy dead Kennedy's um black flag, you know, exploited. Yeah. Um the, the American hardcore of the early 80s that you consider the uh, epitome of punk rock music.
0: Yeah. And maybe this is just a semantic issue. Is it correct that we didn't call punk punk until Lakes McNeil and John Holstrom published Punk Magazine?
2: Well, you know, that's a big question like when was the word invented? In fact, I think the word punk you can see in the late 60s, early 70s writings of Lester Bangs, um, the, the the rock journalist. And he's talking about especially something that he identifies with um, the Stooges, uh, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, um, which is coming out of Detroit, um, and that that's the first time you see the term punk being applied to. But you know, some people even push it for, further back into the into the 60s. There's references to punk bands that are basically garage bands during the 1960s. So the real like the first, it's it, this is something that drives historians crazy, right? Where's your origin point? Um, it, it's it's ho- hotly debated as to what the origin point was. I would say it goes further back than than Legs McNeil or um, John. Holmström's publication "Punk." Uh, I think it's it's in it's already being used to describe music. um, You know, at least like six or seven years before that publication comes about.
0: Um, you know, t- t- and uh, t- so talking about um, how subjective, I guess, it is to talk about p- punk rock, you were mentioning earlier that folks don't necessarily realize how we had these different punk scenes around the country and in the Midwest and on the- in addition to the coast, but certainly CBGB's was a locus of uh, punk rock I- in the 70s and uh, in the 80s, and we had a lot of groups there that, uh, again, I'd be curious if you-, if you would consider them punk, and again, I know it's subjective, but you know, you had folks like Talking Heads, uh, Blondie,
2: yeah. I, and there's other bands too, like Television, and and the one you re, you already mentioned earlier on was the Ramones, of course, right? Yeah, I well, I have I opened the book in in large part about uh, on Blondie because you're right. I mean, Blondie, you know, cuts they cut their teeth at CBGBs. They're associated with the other punk bands like you know, Patti Smith, right. uh, the Ramones, et cetera, et cetera, and Talking Heads. Right?
0: Yeah. Ray was saying something earlier in our, our conversation before we called you that. Uh, Blondie seemed to just benefit from the fact that um, uh, they were able to they were
1: able to perform at CBGBs, but other than that, maybe not actually. Yeah, I'll in cry. my opinion, because she was a hot chick, she got a lot of extra benefits out of the scene. That's my opinion on that.
2: Um, but by '79, they've basically gone. They're basically making what we would call disco music. Yep. Uh, Heart of Glass is is, sure. is, a, is is a number one seller in 1979. Comes out in the summer, and then from there, they kind of they they take a trajectory towards what we would probably today classify as new wave music, electro pop synth music, if you want to call it that, which is I think quite dominant in American popular culture throughout the 1980s. Um, and you know they start to. I mean, Debbie Harry starts doing you know designer jeans commercials. They're they're trying to break into Hollywood. Uh, you <laughs> I know, forgot it, about that. yeah. I mean, you know, they were. If you watched the movie Roadie, um, Blondie is is in that movie, and they of course then do um, the soundtrack for American Gigolo um, with Richard Gere in the early in early eighties. And so you know, I think it, what you see on the part of I think there's a kind of a it's not quite a generational revolt within young kids that formed those scenes that. you've mentioned in the 1980s, but there's a sensibility that, you know, punk rock is either kind of, you know, wilting away, bands are either, are breaking up, or it's becoming successful, but in a, in a type of, in a type of music, in a, in a style that, that a lot of young kids find to be repugnant. It's the, the typical, you know, statement of that band a sell out, which is a term you hear a term right. here throughout the eighties in terms of bands who are looking to break big. So I think that very much so. I mean, I think that that's what made the eighties kind of distinct was that the almost kind of like a feeling of a first generation in New York city, CBGBs was kind of either dying away or was, um, or, or in the case of Blondie was, was, you know, charting its, its course, to celebrityhood. One interesting fact is, is that, um, the the magazine Punk um, out of New York City that we've talked about um, previously um, actually folds in 1979, um, and the and the and the editor of it, John Holmstrom, um, not only just puts the puts the publication to rest, but he also claims that he's going to vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980.
0: Wow, that sounds like the death of punk rock
2: right there, <laughs> or
0: you know a death
2: I, I take it as as one yeah one death um, amongst many um there is, i think that that's but i think that's a. there's a turning point i guess is what i would suggest in in terms of what's constituting punk and and the 80s punk is shares some things with 70s stuff but it's also quite different i think in many ways
0: right and of course the other change from the 70s to the 80s, which we we touched upon in a little bit different way, you know, in addition to this political shift that we saw, we also had a societal shift where we went from... From a generation of hippies just, you know, 20 years earlier to a generation of folks who believed uh, that in a different kind of DIY, where, where everybody could be a self-made millionaire, you know, where greed is good. But in order to do that, yeah. they had to, you know, demonize or, or make a martyr of their younger idealist self from the 1960s. So they had to say goodbye or to, to their hippie self or even say that that, that aspect of their, you know, uh, per, their personality or their belief system was youthful and uh, misinformed they had to say goodbye to being a hippie in order to be able to to become a yuppie
2: yeah it's a, i mean i'm sure you've done uh, you know shows just on the the this term that you hear during the eighties, the yippies, the yuppies. Um, you you know, there's this kind of transition of people from the sixties. And I think for a lot of kids in the eighties, you know, you got really tired. I don't know if this is true for you, but you got really tired of, you know, people who were in a generation prior to you, you know, bragging about, oh, the awesomeness of the counterculture, oh, the greatness of the sixties and all that sort of stuff. And You know, parts of that, parts of what they were celebrating, but they're right. You know, there were definitely, there were things that, that improved because of the 1960s. But on the other hand, you know, it, it always felt like there you know i, mean, I think the movie that uh, that people should go back and watch to get a sense of that is is and it comes out during the time frame that i'm dealing with is the big chill um, which you know is this movie about all these you know supposedly yippie yuppies but if you watch the movie closely it's very hard to tell what exactly they're referring to? What they did in the '60s? It's always very vague, right? You know, I mean, obviously they maybe right. smoked some pot or something like that, right. but and maybe they protested the Vietnam War. But even that wasn't really all that clear, or made explicit. So I think there's this kind of vagueness to this that I think really upset a lot of kids who felt like they were that the you know we went, once we were we were great when we were hippies and you you kids don't know what you're talking about. That sort of that sort of feel to to American culture in the '80s, I think, is a, is a is a big
0: theme. It makes me think are we doing that to our children
2: now? I probably. probably. <laughs> we we always repeat the the uh, failures of our elders, I think.
0: Yes. So I wonder if that means we're in, we're in uh, time for some good music. Yeah. Does punk rock exist today? Is there are there bands that we think of as punk in, in the sense that you would, uh, you know, Think of a, I guess, classic or traditional punk band. You know, based on your personal taste from as a young person or, or your research.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think something really radically changes. Um, I in in two years. The first is in is in 1985, where I basically end the book, um, and that is that Husker Do, who had been a a band that was rooted in a local scene in Minneapolis, um, and had promoted other bands. Had you know had produce zines and stuff like that um they basically signed a contract with warner brothers which i think and and they had throughout the period of time up to 1985 they had always said we will never sell out to a corporate record label we will never because you'll lose control over how you make your music and we'll never do that they're saying that is even as late as 85 they do it there's a story about them in rolling stone in 85 where they say oh we, you know if you join a corporate record label you know it's going to completely destroy your creativity and stuff like that oh you know, a month later, they're signing with Warner Brothers, which is a pretty big, um, you know, corporate sure. music entity. And, um, And they find out pretty soon, you know, in the years that they start releasing records with them, that they're facing all the pressures that they feared that they would um, when they were earlier on, you know, condemning anybody selling out to corporate record labels. So I think '85, you start to see a turn. You start to see that the the mainstream um, record industry is starting to pick up on the idea that maybe there's something that could be done with this punk thing, you know, promoted by corporate um, outlets. Um, And then I think the, the but the biggest the biggest moment, of course, is when Nirvana Breaks Big in 91 and displaces Michael Jackson from the charts, and you have this kind of, you know, huge thing that people start calling, you know, everybody knows is related to punk because of the the backgrounds of the members, and if you do a kind of history of Seattle during the 80s, you can see that Seattle had a, a real burgeoning scene in the early 80s that, that in some ways... Kurt Cobain kind of t- like got involved in slightly in 1983, and then from there it's the, you know the rise to stardom. But I think by 91, you start hearing mm-hmm. a-, a term. Already here in ni- 1985, actually, you start hearing this term alternative music, which starts sure. to d- be something different from the DIY stuff. It becomes more like of a style, but it's something that. Um, people are increasingly saying, Hey, look, you know, corporate record labels can, can take this stuff up and make a profit off of it. And I think when you start having when that happens, something changes pretty drastically, um, in terms of being, uh, in terms of thinking about punk. So I'm sure there are bands out there now who sound punk to people, but I would say that it might just be a kind of style or kind of a, you know, a sub style. Um, and, and, and again, if, if, it, it, I'm sure there are also kids today who are producing their own music in basements and distributing it themselves, probably much more easily now that it, online. Right. Um, but I think that that the the, the threat. In some ways, that punk posed to the mainstream music industry during the early 1980s kind of stops when you get to 85, and certainly once you get into the 90s, things are things things have changed. That's not to, that's not to say that those people don't make good music. That's not to say that you know um, anything like that. It's but it is to say that what constituted the heart of punk in the 80s, I believe, was the independence that kids ex- exerted against the corporate record labels. And once that stopped, once that isn't the, isn't the case you know I think something drastically changes
0: and what I heard in all that and you're not going to be surprised is punk rock was the best in the 1980s
2: uh, that I would agree with. Yeah. I, <laughs> yes. I wouldn't say the popular culture in the eighties is, is is the best, but I see. but I would say that uh, <laughs> punk was that was and it, because it was the most democratic. Um, you know, it was widespread. It wasn't I don't it, there it wasn't it wasn't like an elitist avant-garde sort of thing. So yeah, I, I think so. And I, I still listen to bands like The Minutemen, Dead Kennedys, um, you know, flipper bands like that that were that were part of that early eighties world of punk rock. Yeah.
0: Very good. That's all I needed. You know, I should have just asked you that at the beginning. I could have saved you the effort. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for your time, Kevin. We look forward to reading your book when it comes out. We're not here to entertain punk rock Ronald Reagan in the real culture war of 1980s America. Thanks, Kevin.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: He said the 1980s were the best for punk rock. So I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. I think we have proven right. beyond a shadow of a doubt. No doubt. That the 1980s punk scene was was the best of any decades. So maybe we also taught the professor something. In the
0: end, punk rock was the friends we had all along. Or what was it? I don't know. In the end, <laughs> punk rock was the best in the 80s and you didn't realize it.
1: Yep, until it was gone. Yeah, there you go.
0: All right, so we'll talk to you next time on The 80s. See ya.